Hello out there, and thank you for joining me. My name is Dan Roberts, and today we are going to be giving friendship and the maintenance of friendship one more think. So today with me I have my dear friend, Jake Warnick, who has been a good friend of mine for close to 30 years. Let's not do the math. <laughs> Uh, one of my dearest friends going back for a long time. And it seemed fitting to have Jake join me as my first guest in this podcast because the topic I wanted to cover today is actually friendship. Specifically, friendships that are under stress. So like long distance relationships or friendships that um, where you see each other infrequently. And that pretty much defines Jake and I's relationship pretty closely. I mean, we, were, we went to high school together, junior high together, and, we're, and have been very close friends ever since that time. But for a good chunk of those years, we've lived, if not on different states, on different continents. Um, so I thought uh, it would be fitting to have Jake join me for a discussion of uh, about what makes a long distance friendship work, and also talk about just the benefits of a solid lasting friendship, how to keep it alive, the opposite, right? What kills a friendship. Um, and I also wanted to have Jake on because Jake has the wonderful talent of making me sound smart. Jake asks great questions. He's a thoughtful, he's a deep thinker. And he comes from a completely non-behavioral health line of work. Um, so he sees things differently than I see things. And I think it's always important to have a, a different perspective uh, when we're trying to learn and deepen our own understanding of the world. Anyway, so Jake, thanks for joining us, man. Well, thank you for having me on, Dan, and thank you for that introduction. I appreciate that. Um, and yes, we have known each other since we were young kids, the only two kids in seventh grade taller than six feet. That's that's <laughs> what mean that's what makes a, a friendship right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's connected to height. So if you're short do not apply. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, no, there, it was it was really funny when Jake and I were first. Uh, I think we first met each other in seventh grade. Is that right? Uh, yes, if I remember correctly, we had um, Utah history together. That's right. That's right. And we had a hallway full of kids in junior high, and Jake and I were able to see each other down that hallway over everybody else's heads because we were both. The only kids in our school who were taller than five six, I guess, um, <laughs> and uh, and that that was you know as, as strange as that story might be, that was the beginning of what has become a beautiful friendship. Um, so, in that time, Jake, I mean, when I was in the army, I was I moved to Tennessee, then I was in Germany. I was gone for ten years, right? Um, you guys have been, uh, you and your wife have been pretty stable in terms of where you've lived, but I've lived all over the place, right? Right. So what do you think it is that is different or special about our friendship that allows it to stay intact and healthy when so many other people I know, like that I was close to in high school, have, have drifted off, I've lost connection with them, or they've lost connection with me? What, what do we have that makes it so different? Uh, you know, I think that's a really good question. Um, uh, there's a lot of commonalities between you and I, we have, uh, we have a lot of the same likes and desires as far as what we would, we want to do with our time. Um, we have a lot of, well, let, let's actually include our wives in that. I think our wives are actually kind of key to that too because they're really good friends. But the thing that I think is, is really great about our relationship between the four of us is that your wife and I have a special connection with sports mm -hmm. and you and my wife have a special connection of, of even a longer history. Yeah. I grew up um, in the same neighborhood with your wife. Yeah, yeah, and we've so the four of us we get along really, really well, and I think that pit plays a part in it. But I think, for at least in my mind, what has played a big part is over the years, 
I learned to trust you in a way that I don't trust a lot of people. And that as an adult for me specifically, it's gotten probably harder rather than easier to learn that trust. And therefore that is it's easier for me just to pick up a conversation with you even if we haven't spoken in in six weeks it's easy for me just to pick up a conversation with you because of that trust and it, it, i think that's a huge thing for for me anyway so i mean i think that trust i that point you just made that as an adult it gets harder to trust or maybe harder to perceive the value of really trusting somebody, right? You, you, you build a circle that feels pretty much complete or fully populated at a certain point in your life. And it's hard, harder perhaps as you age to feel the need to bring somebody into that circle. Right. And we, we met each other when we were teenagers and we were still forming, those connections. So I think that set us up for success. But yeah, I, I can I can totally see that, right? If I if we had met in our 30s, I don't know that uh, such a strong friendship would have grown. Um, maybe, um, because we do, we do have a lot in common. But I think it's I think it's more than commonality, right? Because besides that, that commonality, we're not the same person, right? We're not trying to live in the same space or be carbon copies of each other. Right? You, you work in a completely different field than I do. Your interests and mine overlap a lot, but they certainly aren't carbon copies of each other. And I think that that actually has, has helped our friendship over the years, right? Get the, that you're not living my life. I'm not trying to live your life. We're not trying to be each other. So there's never been a sense of, of competition, right? Of like, uh, you know, you're in my seat. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah. But, but I think that's true, man. I mean, in my 30s, I don't find myself, well, I'm in my 40s now, but in my 30s and 40s, I didn't find myself as actively seeking out close friendship as I did certainly in my teens. I feel like I didn't need it as much anymore, All right? But to that point, I think that's why in, in middle adulthood, so many friendships fade away, that they... People just don't need each other anymore. They have this fully populated inner circle that starts to lose, you know, gradually starts to lose population over time. But we've managed to beat that curve. And I think that's, I think that's pretty special. And I mean, I'd love to get your take on, on what it is that we have done or what it is that we, you know, that's special about us that helped us beat that curve and stay friends for so long. Well, I think there's two things. One, one to add to what you were saying, um, and this is where I, I, I guess uh, your expertise comes in. Um, but one of the things I saw a Brene Brown talk. Uh, she's kind of TED Talk. I'm sure you know mm -hmm. who she is. Yep. Um, and she was talking about the vault. And one of those things, it really kind of struck me to my core because I wanted to know who was in my vault. Well, part of, of what that is, is it's actually allowing people, trusting them with you. Hmm. So, for example, I'm really good at reaching out to people and say, what can I do for you? But I'm not good at, at responding to that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. You, and this goes right along in with where I think we have succeeded, is because going back to, the, to that trust, I trust you to be able to respond to that without judgment. Mm -hmm. um, I can complain to you about my wife where I don't do that with anybody else because you know where <laughs> it's coming from I can um, I, I, when you call and say 
is there anything I can do for you? I don't feel like I'm putting you out when responding. Yeah, I, yeah, man, I, I, I totally get that. And I, I think that's, that's shared, right? There's a lot of reciprocity between you and I in that way. Um, you know, whenever Donna and I come into town, there's a completely, it's unspoken. I know that if we didn't have any other place to, any other place to crash, you'd roll out air mattresses in your living room and let us stay there, right? That's just, it goes absolutely without saying. And I think the same is true for you. If you were in my neck of the woods, you know that you would have a place to stay here. You wouldn't even necessarily ask if you could it would be more of a question like hey are you going to be in town when i'm in town and then everything <laughs> else goes unspoken right and it's it's this layer of of time-tested proven reciprocity i know that i can trust you because you've never let me down right anything important that i've that i've handed to you you've treated like it was important you've treated with kid gloves and i hope that i've done the same for you and, you know, it's this, I know that if I go three months without talking to you, because life takes me wherever it takes me, on day three, on, on, on three months and one day, if I send you a text, I know you're not going to resent the absence of the three months. You're going to appreciate whatever it is I have to say on, on three months and one day, right? So, and that's, that's been established so many times that I don't worry about our friendship, right? I'm not, it's not like a house plant that I'm afraid I'm going to kill because it's fragile, right? It's <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's, it's a robust thing. It's a strong animal. And, and I, I think that's truly remarkable that because we've had this kind of mutually proven reciprocity over the years that our friendship has, has lasted beyond that gap, right? That I've stayed in the vault and you have stayed in my vault, you know, to, to borrow that term from Brene Brown. Um, and I know the same is true for, for our wives. When my wife reaches out to your wife, she's always there. Right? I mean, it may not be instantaneous communication. There isn't that sense of pressure like, oh, no, I have to I have to please my friend. Otherwise, she's going to unfriend me. But rather, it's this it's this almost permanency. Right. Like if I if I push a ball down a slide, I know it's going to slide. Right? It's like that that level of expectation just it's absolutely guaranteed that Jake and his wife are going to be there for me and my wife. And that's remarkable, I think, right? At, especially at our age to have that level of, of connectedness. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And one thing to note about our relationship that I think is, is fantastic is that we create new every time we're together. Mm every time we talk we create new and rather than there <clears throat> i'll give you an example dan and i I'll, i guess i'll give the crowd an example <laughs> uh dan and i have a group of friends that we spent a lot of our time with in high school um they have attempted several times over the years to rekindle the group and it never really works out. And one of the reasons why in my mind that it doesn't really work out is because there is no attempt to create new. There is only attempt to reflect upon the past. And though that's fun in intermediate time periods, I don't want to break out my yearbook every time I hang out with an individual. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, the character Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely feel like sometimes with my old friends, we're all playing the role of Uncle Rico whenever we get together, right? Like we're, we're rehashing the glory days such as they were. And like you said, that's fun for a time. But I, I think that's I think that's a real point to that, Jake, every time we get together, we're laying down new memories, building on the old ones and not letting the friendship stagnate. And maybe that's a big part of the recipe for what makes a good long distance and long-term relationship function. Because I've got, man, I, I gotta tell you, the, those guys that we used to spend so much time with, we were a tight group. We did a lot of fun stuff together. And then we stopped and we just rested on our laurels, I guess. And 
it turned out to be insufficient to keep these friendships alive. And I, if any one of those guys were to call me up today and they say they were in town and wanted to go to lunch, you betcha, man, absolutely. Let's have lunch. But I can almost guarantee you we talk about old times because we wouldn't have much else to talk about. Whereas you and I have created enough new memories and enough meaningful continued experience that we would talk about the stuff we did last week as opposed to the stuff we did two decades ago. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I think there's something also to be said about having healthy expectations, right? And, and I don't know that you and I ever sat down and had a conversation about what we can and cannot expect of one another, what we will and will not do for one another. But somewhere along the line, something like a culture of our friendship settled in where I knew just instinctively what to expect from you. And you probably know the same for me, I would guess. Right. And, and as long as you don't deviate from those expectations, then I feel like you're a known quantity. I'm safe with you. My friendship is safe with you because I have again, a time tested and proven set of rules that, that I know that you'll follow, that I, that I know you will, that, that you will adhere to, um, you know, and along, among those is, you know, every time we come into town, if I can't spend time with you and your wife, if we don't have an evening free, I'm going to feel bad because I know you guys will feel bad because we didn't spend time with you. Right. But I also know that if we don't have time, you're going to understand that and you're going to respect the fact that we were busy because you will know that genuinely and truly, if we had had time, we would have spent time with you. Right? That's kind of a convoluted way of saying it. But, you know, this we've done this. We've done this dance dozens of times now right. um, over the last over the last year since we've lived away from home. And that's just been the case every single time. It's always like, oh, man, if you have time, that'd be so great to hang out. And we do hang out. And we have a great time. We play games and we make new memories and we make fun of my wife's bad English um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and create this, you know, maintain this wonderful culture. But there have also been times when we couldn't spend time together because whatever called us back into town was, you know, kept us too busy. Um, and I have never felt from you this sense of punishment, you know, the way friends punish each other, some kind of, uh, you know, remonstration or criticism of me because I didn't put you on the first, uh, on the upmost, uppermost pedestal. All right. And I, I don't know. I mean, does, does that swing both ways? Do you have the same sense for, for me and my wife? Yeah. 100%. Um, 100%. And if you don't mind, I, I might get a little deep here. Um, dive away. So one of the things that, uh, I will, I will tell you, just just as the human experience i think the friend experience experiences a lot of the same growth patterns and growth expectations and there's a i think a couple times in our life where we have hit those growth expectations and that we may have approached them with trepidation with each other but we've been able to move forward together and um, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I was really worried when you joined the joined the army. Uh, I was worried that you were going to be off in places like Tennessee, and we just would lose that. We would lose that connection, lose that touch, and that didn't happen uh, because we did keep that trust and keep each other in that vault. And we also respected, and I love the fact that you've already brought it up, but we respected that thing to where at three months, instead of, oh, now you text me? <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's more of the fact of, oh my goodness, it's so good to hear from you. And I think that was, that was a huge growth moment for us. And it was really disappointing for me, more so because you took my tickets away for the youth games. But... Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It wasn't because of that, but I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the other uh, the the other thing too is that uh, about seven 
or eight or so years ago now, my wife and I made a pretty big change in our lives and we were worried that it was going to, because it felt like you were growing one way, you and Donna were growing one way and she and I were growing another way. And it felt, we were more so worried about telling our parents, we were more worried about telling you guys. So, I mean, please stop me, Jacob, I'm putting too much detail out there, but just the context that we're talking about is Jake and I grew up in the same religion, in the same church, and uh, my wife and I remain in that church, and Jake and his wife have since left that church, and that that particular rift has historically caused an awful lot of friendships or even family relationships to fall apart. Uh, they'll just fracture under the strain, and you know when when you and uh, when you and your wife told us that you were making that decision and moving in that direction, right? Do you remember what my wife and I said? Uh, not verbatim, no, but I remember the feeling of I remember appreciating how you took it. So what your fear was was the exact same fear that we had because we've known multiple people who have made that exact same decision. And for whatever reason, probably feels very justified for the people who do it, but it has been almost 100% of the people who have left the church have stopped wanting to hang out with us as if we are the standard bearers or you know, as if we are the church itself. There's been very, very few exceptions in my life who have been able to continue to maintain a relationship with me while changing the, for lack of a better word, values according to which they live, right? And that's, I can literally think of three people, right? The two of you, and then my wife has uh, another close friend who has, she's been able to maintain a friendship with even though she is no longer a member of the church, right? So. For some people, the membership in a church may be a transient thing for which you know, they join a different church every time they move, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you know a pretty big you know, global cultural movement. Um, and membership in that church is pretty, um, what's the right phrase here, right? It's dedicated? Pretty, pretty important, right? Pretty, yeah, people, people hang a lot of identity um, off, that, off of that membership in that church. So, when you and, and your wife left the church, our concern, and what I said to you at the time was, man, I hope we can stay friends. I hope you don't unfriend us um, while you know going about following your conscience and, doing, and making the choices that you think are right. And that was the exact same fear that you had, right? Because I think we were both sensing this gravity or the weight of that disparity or at least what we thought would be the weight of the disparity, because you can convince yourself that those things are massively important when it turns out they're only as important as you convince yourself they are. <laughs> yes, I think right. that's a great, great way to put it. And, and if you carry around that belief that I can only be friends with whatever, it doesn't matter, pick your in-group. If you carry around the belief that you can only be friends with people who are part of your group, then you're right. And that's just a predictive, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy that people who aren't in your group won't understand you or won't like you. But that's at the core of every bias that I can only be with, understand or communicate with people who have X similar to me, race, gender, sexuality, hair color, sports team affiliation. When you make that your rule, then that is the reality of the world in which you live. But I think both of us, valued our friendship so much that we weren't willing to let any kind of other group adherence or lack of adherence change our adherence to each other. I mean, for lack of a better term, we had, we had our own native tribalism that we stuck with, right? We, we kept the tribe intact, even though our external group tribalism started to shift and change. And that's, I mean, maybe that's just a fancy way of saying we stayed friends, right? Um, yeah. You know, we yeah. stayed friendly to each other and kept doing things with, for, and around each other um, to prove that we were still loyal to and valued each other more than 
whatever the label might say we needed to. And and I think in that way, there's there's a thing that uh, people say a lot, you know, that your closest family is the family you choose. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I believe we have chosen each other as family. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I think we have treated each other as family more so than I can say most of, of my extended family. Now my immediate family is fairly close, but my, my extended family, I would say you are very much closer than the vast majority. Well, and, and you guys are closer, Not you guys all. are closer to the majority of my immediate family, right? Like with the exception of, <laughs> of maybe my mom, right? My siblings have all kind of drifted apart. I think because we have not made it a priority, like mutually, we have not made it a priority to stay connected and to create new, right? But as, as, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking there are a few people, uh, the, the image came to my mind of, you know, like if I was building an ark, right? If that became my job to build an ark and do the Noah thing, who would I bring with me on my boat, right? And if I could build the boat as big as I wanted to, but populate it only with the people that I really wanted to save, that like matter enough to me that I would miss them if they were gone, right? I'm just, I mean, if I started making a list, it'd probably be a pretty long list because I'd feel like a jerk for leaving people off. But <laughs> it's 7 billion people. The ark is earth. Done. Um, right. <laughs> no. Uh, if, I, if I was to, to put a list, like a short list of the people that I would want closest to me, right, in, the, you know, in a push came to shove situation, obviously you guys are on that list. But you talked about the family that you choose. And one of the greatest things about my military experience, and I, I think a lot of army families are going to, connect with this army military i don't know I, I i was only in the army so i can only speak for the army but i assume it's the same for everybody in the military because you get deployed to outer punxsutawney nowhere or you know you're gonna spend three years <laughs> three years in freaking you know louisiana at fort polk or some you know godforsaken backwater um no offense to fort polk but if you've been there you know um <laughs> Uh, when you're out there and you don't have anybody except for the people in your unit, as a soldier, that's why we get such tight connections. The very first, I think, truly racially integrated culture in the United States was the military. Because as soon as people of all races and backgrounds were put into the same unit, all of those pretenses about the things that made us different were forced to fall away and you didn't care what color the person was who had your back. You cared what uniform he was wearing. You cared what flag he had on his shoulder. And if that was the same flag you had, you were brothers. Whether or not you guys would have gone to school together or been friends growing up, you were automatically brothers. Because of that mutual involvement in something bigger than yourselves and that mutual willingness to fight and die for each other that was just assumed. And I think a lot of people struggle, especially after getting out of the military, they struggle to recapture that anywhere. And you know, in my work with veterans, I see that all the time, that veterans just cannot connect with civilians, in part because they're not creating any new connection with civilians, right? It's a self-fulfilling self prophecy again. But I'm thinking about my, uh, my last army neighborhood. We had some absolutely tremendous friends from that neighborhood with whom we remain friends today. And those friends are right now scattered. I've got one of them, one family is in Okinawa. Another family is in, um, is in Fiji. I've got a family of friends who are in Seattle and pretty much one group of friends from Seattle all the way down to Florida. And I've got friends in Italy right now, just a wonderful, wonderful um, family that would live just kitty corner from us. Um, who are now stationed in Italy, who are absolutely like family to us because they've applied all of these same things, right? The same kind of appreciation rather than judgment, sharing and creating of new memories rather than relying on what we used to have, 
And there's just this wonderful reciprocity. It's like we are chasing each other in a race of who can be better to each other, right? So rather than this this toilet, you know, drink, circling the toilet bowl kind of, um, you know, infernal cycle of things getting worse and worse, instead it's like this infernal cycle of things getting better and better, where if they do something for us, we feel indebted to do something for them out of love and kindness. So then we do something for them, and I guarantee you they feel indebted to do something for us. So it's this, it's this you know, you wash my back, I'll wash yours um, type scenario. And I think we've had that going on since junior high, since seventh grade, right? When we were 13-year-old, you know, 13-year-old punks. <laughs> um, <laughs> In the truest sense of the word, but I mean, so so as I experienced that in the military, I saw that happen multiple times, right? And there are the families that you are friendly with, but not friends with. And I've got a lot of those, a lot of people that I'm friendly with. I genuinely enjoy their company, right? We'll chat back and forth on Facebook on occasion. We'll like each other's stuff, but nothing beyond that. And then there's that special special kind of creme de la creme layer of the people you're friendly with who become and remain genuine friends. I think there's some kind of like a natural inertia to that, almost like it's this phenomenon that happens around you, but it requires maintenance. So you have to be lucky, but you have to also do the work. Right? And we were lucky to find each other at the time that we did, but we also did the work since that time, right? Without and, and, and it's it's fragile, right? It's like a Fabergé egg. However much work it takes to make it and however valuable it is, it's still one or two bad moments away from shattering, right? And so you have to treat it with care, right? And be cautious and careful around your friendships. Treat them like the treasures that they are. Man, it, it's hard because I, I agree with that 100%, but at the same time, I would also say understand the the fact that that Fabergé egg you are you are gonna drop it hmm. right you're gonna drop it your your friend is going to drop it and if you're looking and waiting for that to happen hmm. then you're never gonna allow somebody into again to borrow from Brene Brown in into that vault and that's, I, I'm just to be a little self-reflective here. Uh, that's kind of what I do everywhere else. Hmm. I wait for that to happen. I look for that. I think, well, they're not going to, you know, be, they're not going to maintain that Fabergé egg in the way that I expect it to be held. And so there, it's going to drop. And hmm. I think a healthier outlook is to help pick up those pieces and and i think we've been there for you to help pick up those pieces sometimes you've been there for me uh and us to help pick up those pieces and i don't and for me specifically dan i'm going to tell you that i don't i don't do that with everybody <laughs> You know, I, I wait for it to drop and then say, well, are you going to pick it up? Well, if you're not going to pick it up, you're not a real friend, you know, and, and that's, a, that's an unfair requirement on my part that I don't hold you to that standard because I'm going to get down on my knees and help, uh, pick that, pick up the pieces with you. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think so. Right. And I, and I wonder if that's also one of these. One of those things that you can only know after the crisis, right? When you never know which of your neighbors are really going to be there for you until your basement floods, right? You want yeah. you want them all to be there for you. You expect you would hope that they'll all be there for you, but you're not going to hold your breath and just wait around until somebody comes to help. But when your basement floods, the neighbor that shows up with towels and a mop is the one that you're going to form a connection with because they were there for you when you needed them and they put kind of vague friendliness into action at a level that actually mattered right um 
And I think you and I have done that for each other often enough and had occasion to over the last 30 years often enough that if you're having a bad day, I'm not going to take it against you. And you are not a single variable person for me, right? You're not a, you're not a caricature or one-dimensional element of yourself that I'm judging you by. I've got to see you from multiple angles, some that I didn't choose to see you from. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. welcome. Yeah, you're yeah. <laughs> um, right. But I mean, in the physical and in the metaphysical sense, right, I, I've seen a lot of different signs of you. So if you're having a bad day, right, if my basement floods and you aren't coming to help me fix it, right, it's not I, I'm not judging you on that single iteration. I'm not judging you on that single event. Rather, I'm judging you on an entirety of, of who you are and who I know you to be. Now, that being said, right, this goes back to the Fabergé egg thing. If my basement floods a couple times and you don't come, right, I mean, assuming, of course, that you were close enough that you could come, right, but you're not, so I wouldn't hold you to that. But if there was something that I needed that you could provide and you didn't provide it, then, yeah, that would feel like a damage to the friendship, the friendship that has been, and kind of threaten to restructure my expectations of you. But that's what I, that's exactly what I mean about the work that's required. Because you keep not letting me down. And I would hope that I keep not letting you down. Now, we haven't been super high demanding of each other the last 10 years. We're pretty self-sufficient people. But man, if you had no place to stay, I would be pissed off at you if you didn't come live in my house. <laughs> like I literally would come find you and smack you upside the head and then put you inside my guest room. Like that's how it would be. Because if I didn't do that for you, then I would not be acting in a way that's worthy of the friendship that we've had for so many years. And that for me, that just feels like a natural organic maintenance of what we've spent so much time and energy putting in place over the years. And I, I think I'm right there with you, man. Like I don't do that with everybody else. And I do have kind of a world weary way of looking at people where I don't look at friendliness as friendship anymore. If somebody is nice to me and says hi to me and, you know, waves every time I drive past, I don't think of that person as a friend. I think of them as being friendly, right? What they're doing doesn't reflect anything on me. That's just who they are. They're a nice person or at least socially appropriate. And I don't let myself expect anything of them beyond friendliness. So when somebody actually doubles down and produces real friendship, it's always this real pleasant surprise, right? Because I think I'm like you, I've stopped expecting it. And I'm much more likely to anticipate that people's friendliness is pretty superficial. I'm not gonna bank on it too much. And if somebody does go above and beyond friendliness into real friendship, it feels like a treasure. It feels like something, uh, like I've discovered something truly valuable and you know, I, I really, really, latch onto it right as an adult so i mean some this this family the, these friends of mine who live in italy now they just sent they've got a they've got a daughter who's about the same age as one of my sons and we always joked with them that they'd grow up and get married um they just sent us a little care package from italy which is awesome full of a bunch of super super delicious italian yummy stuff and this beautiful little note that was inside right this is an extra level stuff that they did for us their daughter wrote a special note specifically to our son, right? A little, you know, Christmas card. And that just shows an extra level of thoughtfulness, an extra level of consideration. You can't think about, about me and my family at that level and do me that level of kindness without crossing the boundary from being friendly into actual friend territory. Right. Yeah. And, and it's multiple things that this particular family has done that lets us just absolutely adore them. And, you know, we constantly feel like we're ch we're chasing them. We're trying to catch up with them and be as good to them as they are good to us because their <laughs> their friendliness has transcended friendliness and become actual friendship. Meanwhile, that same exact neighborhood, we have a whole bunch of people that were super friendly that I really like and enjoy their company, but I don't consider them to be friends because they haven't put in the effort, right? The, for lack of a better term, the sweat equity 
for the friendliness to become friendship. Yeah, I, I love the way you put that. I, um, you did that much more eloquently than I do it. I just, I, I have a bunch of buddies and very few friends. Yeah. I think you said something earlier that really resonated with me in, in the fact of where you said that, uh, I haven't felt the need until there is a need. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, holy crap. Um, you know, I just, I'm, I feel like I'm hitting my head up against the wall here on this, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I need to call a buddy over here to help me, help me do this, you know? And obviously if you were still in town, you'd be the first one that I'd call because you're also very handy. I'm very techie for those who are listening i'm not very handy and so uh sometimes when something goes wrong you used to be the first person i would call and then you moved to tennessee <laughs> sorry and and, uh, and not only did you take my youth tickets you took you know my hammer but... <laughs> we went over this jake you can buy hammers at stores <laughs> oh dang it um, but yeah, and so it's, uh, it's interesting for me and, you know, it, it, I, I don't know. I, there's times to where I'm like, man, I should call this person because I know they would come over here in a second, but do I, do I want to bother them? And for you, I've never had that fear. Right. Like, do I want to bother them? I could call you up at midnight and you'd be like, yeah, let's do it. And, and I, you can. And I would absolutely take that call. And if you were just drunk calling me because you saw a funny meme and you wanted to share it, and you forgot what time of day it was. <laughs> right. I would laugh it off and be like, Jake, dude, it's two o'clock, man. Like, go to bed. Um, does your right. wife know where you are? Come on, man. Um, <laughs> right. Like. I would, I would show, I would shrug that off. It's never happened, right? You haven't abused our friendship in that way. I would take the call, even if there was no there there, because I would also want to take the call if there was a there there, right? If it's you calling me at two o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to assume until like the, you know, the boy who cried wolf, the fifth or sixth time, if you call me in the middle of the night, I'm not going to assume that you found a funny meme and that you're drunk. Right? I'm going to assume that there's a need because you have also respected that end, right? It's that, that, that mutual give and take that I think allows our friendship to flourish. You've never abused it, right? You've never been that guy who wants to borrow my truck every weekend and then brings it back with the, tr with the tank empty. So because you've never abused that friendship, I think it's innately known that if you actually had a need, I would be there for you, right? Yeah. Um, and I know the same of you because You've never abused my friendship. I've never abused yours, I hope. Never. Um, so, and that, that's, that, again, I think that's that reciprocity that is the, the, the secret sauce for maintaining a friendship is having that uns, maybe unspoken, maybe actually spoken out expectation of what you can and cannot do, and then abiding by those rules. So that when you're, you know, a grown ass man and your basement floods, to use that metaphor again, that I would recognize, okay, everybody that the, my friends know that if it was easy for me to handle, I'd handle it on my own. But if I'm reaching out to them, it's a real problem and I really need their help. So that a, a cry for help from me to you feels serious. And a cry, from, a cry for help from you to me would feel very serious, right? Because you've never been the boy that cried wolf. You've always had a lot of respect, if anything, too much respect. It's like I find out after the fact that you could have used my help. And I'm like, dude, call me. Right? Yeah. Yeah, man. I think, you know, I think there's there's a deeper psychological principle that goes along here. And it's just in, in basic relationship reciprocity, all of the relationships that thrive and that are really healthy are characterized not by what is allowed, but by what is forbidden, right? We, we call it boundaries. And we don't tend to think of our friendships as being characterized strongly by what is not okay, but that is very much the way it is, right? Friendships are absolutely defined by what is not okay. And if everybody is on board with the same more or less rules about what will and will not be okay, 
then the friendship, the relationship of any kind can thrive. But it's when you violate those expectations of what is not okay, that's when all relationships start falling apart. And this can be done in catastrophic ways like, you know, extramarital affairs or, you know, stealing somebody's stuff, right? Steal your friend's car. That's probably a, a deal breaker. But within all Taking of them, advantage of their generosity, Matt, that's what I was just going to say, right? Most of these, most of these intrusions are not massive. They're not big. They're small, little corrosive things like drops of acid rain, right? They just wear away at the surface until it, and, until all of the clarity is washed away and covered. Right? So if you, if you allow yourself to get pushed into things you aren't actually willing to do, then that being pushed fosters resentment. And next time it happens, it's going to foster even more resentment. So if, for instance, you were that friend who always wanted to borrow my truck and kept bringing it back with an empty gas tank, if I kept letting you do that, I would naturally start generating more and more resentment every time you did it to the point that I started ghosting you when you called me up. Because I would tell myself, I know what he needs. He just wants to borrow my truck. He's going to bring it back empty just like he always does, etc. And that forces a crisis, right? That forces us to have a difficult conversation in which I call you all sorts of colorful names and you get mad at me and defensive and our friendship fractures around that. Whereas if we had set clear boundaries initially, where the first time you asked to borrow my truck and you brought it back empty, if I said to you, that's not okay. Like, no, man, you don't get to borrow my truck anymore. You brought it back empty, that's not okay. If you know that I'm serious, and you have respect for me, then that behavior ends. Just like if I, you know, if I, whatever, if I called you and asked you to be on my podcast, right? <laughs> um, but I did so in a way that didn't respect your boundaries or your, you know, the integrity of your time, um, then yeah, that's a party foul. And I think having those boundaries that if you're, if you're lucky, they get established to everybody's kind of mutual approbation automatically and everybody just knows this is the things that we can expect of each other here's what good decent friends do and all the other stuff is not allowed that long list of stuff that we that we cannot do with for and around each other that would violate our friendship i think is actually like the no man's land around a well-defined friendship that kind of keeps you centered right it's, it's a weird image that's forming in my head i'm thinking of like an island surrounded by a lake of lava right on the island everything's happy and good but if you stray off of the island there be monsters right there that's where friendship dies it, but it's such a wonderful place to be we willingly intentionally limit our movements around each other right there are things that i would never even think of doing to you or to your wife they would never even come to my mind like taking something from you like going to visit your guys's house and stealing one of your collecting one of your collectible mugs or cups right that would never cross my mind first off because i don't really like them second off <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say i don't think they'd fit well in your house <laughs> second off because i know they mean something to you and i don't want to hurt you that's like specifically anathema to, to everything that i'm trying to achieve with you so i keep myself intentionally in a limited scope of behaviors, right? And because I'm willing to do that, and because you have thus far always been willing to do the same for me, our friendship has survived. And even those, even those, the, the, the tough moments of separation, right? Where we don't know if our friendship is gonna survive. Certainly when I moved to Tennessee, we didn't know that for certain, that our friendship would thrive the way it has when we weren't physically around each other. It dropped into a different gear, right? It was less frequent. We certainly weren't seeing each other as often. But that right. gear was still respectful. And it was it was mutual. It was a level of, hey, guy, I'm thinking about you. Here's an email. I just, you know, wanted to let you know that you're on my mind. Okay. That, those go back and forth for two or three days and then radio silence for a couple months. But there's no, there was never any acrimony. There's never any accusation or bitterness about it. You didn't assume badly of me just because I was quiet and I didn't do the same thing of you. So we're limiting our behavior, which I think artificially we try to avoid talking about the benefits of limitation, 
but all health is limited, right? If you want to, if you want to live a long and healthy life, the list of things you should not do is much longer than the list of things you should do to be healthy. And, and then the same is true for friendship, I think. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. Since we're talking about what makes a friendship succeed, can you think of a specific friendship that you thought would succeed, but that has failed? And like, can you think of a particular reason why? Um, I think every relationship that I can think of that has failed, I kind of have a criteria. Like, do I find that person energizing to be around? Mm -hmm. Is it too energizing? <laughs> Like, are they a little high volume all the time? Um, is it mostly what I find, I, I'm going to be perfectly honest and probably a little bit too real here, but uh, mostly I find that the friendships don't succeed because of me. My want, my desire, my... And this is actually something that I that I want to address while we're still here in the moment here uh, something that I've always appreciated about you is you, you understand who I am as a person and you don't you don't expect me to act like your wife and I don't mean <laughs> wife and duties I don't mean that what I mean <laughs> that is that is correct that is correct sir what, what I mean, though, is your wife is a very giving and loving person, and she's very thoughtful all the time and always reaching out. And I feel like I'm a very kind person, but I'm not always the most thoughtful person. And you have never, you have always held me to the standard of who I am. Hmm. And you've always said, Jake, is there a way you can be a, you can be a better version of yourself? You've never said, why don't you act more like this person? Hmm. And something that is hard for me again, to get, to have people get into my vault is that I hold them to your standard. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, no, you're, you're saying it's my fault now. It's my fault there. <laughs> No, I'm like, Dan doesn't expect me to to reach out all the time and be there 100%. And I know that's it's a it's a fault on myself, but it's uh, it, my relationships seem to usually fade due to the fact of lack of communication. Mm. Um, but I will tell you, in general, the relationships that I think work are ones where people hold, as I mentioned earlier, uh, people hold each other to the standards of who that person is. So I'm going to hold you to the standard of who you are. Mm -hmm. And if I think you're falling below that standard, I'm, I'm definitely going to bring that up, but I'm not going to hold you to the standard of being somebody that you're not. Mm -hmm. And I find that oftentimes in relationships um, and in friendships, I find people who I'm like, I could get along with this cat. The, he and I could really hang out and talk. And I hold him to a standard of a person that he's not. So that relationship filter or falters, hmm. or he holds me to a standard of somewhere where he expects me to act like him and not myself. And I'm using him uh, as the pronoun here, but it could be a, a woman as well. But, uh, just, you know, my, my thing with friends is that if I hold them to a certain standard of somebody who they're not, that's when the relationship falters because my expectation has faltered. Well, and I think that's deeply wise of you, Jake, to be aware of that in real time. Right, that you've got a standard or an expectation of, of treatment that other people aren't meeting, and, and and maybe that's because they suffer by comparison to friends you've had for decades, um, and they're kind of climbing an uphill comparative battle. But yeah, I I, I totally that resonates with me. Um, I I get where that's coming from. That I think perhaps I do that too, where I have 
I've just kind of set this definition of what a good friendship looks like. And maybe some of these people who were friendly but aren't friends to me could become friends if I changed that expectation within myself and allowed that friendliness to be genuine friendship. Because that's my definition, right? That's, that's, that's what I am carrying around and foisting upon them. And if you're doing the same thing in terms of communication, that you know it's not meeting an, a preset expectation that you have in your mind, so you're kind of setting new relationships up to fail, I do the same thing. We just do it in, in different ways and for different reasons, perhaps. But I, I, and I wonder how universal that is. I, my professional experience tells me that's probably a lot more universal than, I mean, it makes me sad probably how universal it is that people have a hard time forming friendships because of these preconceived notions that we carry around about what a friend must be or what a friendship must have. And like you just said, one of the things that you value most about our friendship is that I don't expect you to be like my wife. I don't expect you to be like some of my other friends. I want you to be the best version of you. And I think there's there's an important balance there, right? I don't want you to be the worst version of you. Like I do expect you, like if, you, if I found out that you were like, I don't know, man, just messing up some some significant way like i hope that you know that i'm going to find you and put a boot in your ass like i hope you know that <laughs> oh yeah right and i would expect it and i uh, and i would absolutely expect the same of you if i was screwing up man i need people around me to pull me aside and be like no that's garbage that's hot garbage and you gotta knock it off that's what friends are for right to keep us limited to keep us on that island where we can thrive and to point out to us when we're getting too close to the edges where destruction waits, right? And But I don't want you to be me. I don't want you to be any of my other friends. I don't want you to be some kind of, you know, entourage, lick spittle, you know, lackey who just follows me around like some kind of roadie, right? Uh, that would that would just annoy the crap out of me. Um, what I want you to be is, is the world's best Jake Warnick. Um, which you already are and you continue to be, which is cool. Um, and any other variant of you would be less, right? You would diminish yourself if you tried to be anybody else. It's deeply, I mean, I feel like it's a deep compliment that you recognize that. And I hadn't even realized it in those terms until, until you said it, but I get the same exact thing from you. And maybe that's another one of these core ingredients that a friend needs to be somebody who will accept you as you are, doesn't want you to be something different, but definitely wants to shine you up and polish you so that you are the very best version of yourself and isn't satisfied with you looking bad or being shabby when you don't have to be, right? Right. I, that's, a, again, you said it much more eloquently than I did. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I, I'm it, used to that by now, though. But, <laughs> but it, it occurs to me also that this is the role of parents for small children, right? To take a child as they are, to help them learn who they are, but not to accept them at their limited ability, but to keep asking them and pushing them and prodding them to do and be capable of more, to develop their talents, to learn more and, and you develop their intelligence. You love the child as they are. But you're never, you never feel like they're done. You're like, oh, well, okay, congratulations, you're 18, I've done everything for you that I can, get out of my house, right? It's not, <laughs> um, <laughs> we feel like that sometimes, but you're not done. And I think as children, we rely on our parents to be that corrective and motivational force, but then when we launch the corrective and motivational force that helps us most to know whether we have strayed from the path are our friends. If we have the pleasure and the blessing of, of generating and maintaining true friendships, I think there's a, a there's a unique difficulty in modern culture with social media and having so many friends but so few friendships that you that nobody really has a guiding factor to you other than popularity, right? If I'm if I'm a TikTok world star. 
I do whatever gets me the most views, but that might be really stupid crap. <laughs> right. Right. And people might be watching me because they think I'm ridiculous and none of them care about me enough to tell me, to pull me aside and say, Hey guy, this stuff that you're doing makes you look like a fool. They want me to be more foolish. They want me to be more laughable because they're laughing at my videos. And maybe that makes me a star. Maybe I'm a comedian. I don't know. There's all sorts of ways to be correct. But a real friend would be the one who would pull me aside and say, man, I know you. I know you want to be respected. You're not getting respect. You're getting the opposite of it. You look like you look silly. So that that corrective nature that used to come from parents when we're very small, I think must come from friends as we age, people who genuinely know and are attached to us because our parents get less and less connected as we age and have less and less of a guiding hand in our actual lives, much less so than, than friends can have. And I think on, on top of that too, to add on to another issue with all of that is the idea of if, and I see it all over the place in many, many different forms, but the idea of if you don't accept me as I am at this moment, then you're not truly there for me, where there's a lot of moments that I've had that I'm glad you didn't accept me for that, <laughs> that I'm glad you said, what are you doing? And or that you did it in another way of, hey, where do you think this is going to take you? You know, and if if I was that person to sit back and say, well, you don't really you must not really respect me if you're not going to respect all of my choices, you know, and that's I guess I'm just not that big of a narcissist, but uh, you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you, you need to work on that, Jake. Oh, okay. <laughs> nah, man. Well, that's that's probably as good a place to to wrap it in as as any. Otherwise, we're going to go on for hours and hours. Um, we always could. <laughs> we we always do. <laughs> um, but yeah, man. I thank you so much for being my first guest on the podcast, man. I am I'm deeply honored that you were willing to jump into that role and, and put yourself out there. Jake is not a professional broadcaster, although he easily could be. If you got Jake talking about any kind of sports, the man has a mind that is capable of remembering dates and stats and facts and all sorts of stuff about anything that he has ever watched that is absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. Um, even teams he doesn't like, he can tell you who won the game last year and what their score was and where their rankings were. It's really impressive um, to the point I think he might be a cyborg um, <laughs> if he if he wasn't aging so gracefully. <laughs> so well, you um, know that's just the uh, uh, that's just um, the cyborg programming. <laughs> oh, that's that's a very subtle touch. That's uh, that's well yeah. done. Um, so, I, I need to get into uh, um, uh, Ant-Man. Why can't I think of his name all of a sudden? Oh, well, this is the guy who actor? played it. Yeah, the actor who plays Ant-Man. I need to get in touch with his manufacturers because they didn't put that touch in. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he, he didn't age. That's right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you can also tell that me and Jake share an interest in movies. Um, and, uh, and just about all things, the only thing that Jake does not have correct about himself is that he thinks Batman is better than Superman. Um, but yeah, well, some, some diseases cannot be cured. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. That, that's a topic for another time. <laughs> maybe, maybe another episode. So another one of the reasons that, I, as, as I said at the beginning, one of the reasons I asked Jake to join me is because Ever since we've been friends, Jake has always had this ability to pull the best side of me out. And he makes me feel smarter than I actually am. He makes me sound smarter than I actually am because he has this natural way about him of highlighting the good things that other people say. One of my favorite things about him is how, is how easy it is for everyone who hangs out with Jake to look like a great person because Jake is in the room. And that's a special talent. Jake is a 
he's like a catalyst for the best parts of other people. Um, and when, uh, when we were young and trying to decide what we wanted to be when we grew up, I kept on Jake about how he needed to become some kind of a sports broadcaster because he has the charisma and the knowledge um, to get that done. To his credit, he disregarded that advice. <laughs> um, and instead, he did the manful work of taking the jobs that would help him support his family and keep him in keep him grounded and connected to what actually mattered to him rather than following what I said should matter to him. So even though you just heard him talk about how, you know, I've helped him out so much, he also helped him out, helped, helped himself out quite a bit by disregarding my advice. Um, so I just thought that needed to be said. Anyway, Jake, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for being my guest. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me tonight. Well, you are very welcome, and thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I think another element of friendship that you just touched on really quick is the fact that uh, I felt what you just said was 100% sincere and not just blowing smoke. So I love you, man. I love I you, I appreciate too. it. Uh, well, again, thanks for joining me, Jake. M many more episodes to come, I feel. Yes, I hope so. Thank you, everybody out there, for joining us. Let's take care of each other.